Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, issue 12, August 3304. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial. It's difficult to sum up the experience of building Sagittarius Eye over a full year in a few short paragraphs. A glance at the front covers of our earlier issues is enlightening. You can clearly see how the magazine has evolved over the months. The first issue dropped on an unsuspecting galactic community in September 3303. That first issue, the brainchild of Commander Whitman and five or six collaborators, bears slim resemblance to what you hold in your hands. Members of the team have come and gone, mostly come, we now number nearly 60, and with new talent has come new ideas. Fantastic new columns, like Mini Watto's hot rod of feature, and Rasudin's memorable conspiracy theories and new design directions. Lex Moloch, our art editor, has driven the arresting and iconic visual style of the magazine since issue 6. For the months, we've been lucky enough to attract some exciting contributors. Paige Harvey and Will Flanagan have both written articles, and we've been very grateful for their support. And Alan Stroud author of Lave Revolution and organizer of LaveCon, has become a regular staff writer. Several other published authors have chipped in their talent and their time, as well as some of the galaxy's best-known and most identifiable artists, like Matt2596, Muzipan, Ian Baristan, and DMC Rules. One of the most significant developments has been our relationship with the SPVFA, which stands for Stellar Photography, Videography, and Fan Art. They have become our video and image partners, sourcing all of our raw material for our bulletin short news videos, as well as all the stock and article images for the magazine. This collaboration has brought us into contact with some truly brilliant and charming people, like Dam Fox and Orange Phoenix, and demonstrably raised the quality of all our output. It is to these artists that our special feature this month is dedicated. Our teams are a dynamic mix of professionals doing pro bono, what they spend their days getting paid to do, and enthusiastic amateurs at all stages of life, learning new skills. It is this heady mix which makes Sagittarius Eye special. If you've been watching from the sidelines, would like to be a part of something exciting, but can't see where you'd fit in, get in touch. We'll find a way for you to help out. So, what does the future hold? Issue 13 hits newsstands as normal on Thursday 13th September. As our production cycle is eight weeks long, it might interest you to know that most of the articles for it will have been written by the time you read this. Our team has never been larger, more packed with talent or more enthusiastic than we are today, so you can expect many more issues of Sagittarius Eye in future. At the time of writing, we have so much material on ice that we could come up with another five and a half months' worth of issues, even if nobody came up with a single new idea. We have exciting ideas for growth, too. It turns out one magazine per month isn't enough for some people's creativity, so you can expect to see some interesting new projects coming out of the Sagai offices over the next few months. But everything we create will be, as it has always been, of the highest quality possible, by commanders, for commanders, and about commanders. Personally, being involved with Sagittarius Eye has been the most exciting thing I've done since first climbing into the flight seat. 
The astonishing generosity of the people who work together to produce this magazine is humbling, and I am constantly amazed by what they produce, entirely for free and in their own time. Becoming friends with them has been a real honour. Thank you all for your support over the last year, and for championing the hard work of so many people. Keep reading, and keep flying. Fellow travellers, the history of rocketry. Go for main engine start. TMRS 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. All three engines up and burning. Two, one, zero, and liftoff. The final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. Roger roll, Atlantis. Houston now controlling the flight of Atlantis. The space shuttle spreads its wings one final time for the start of a sentimental journey into history. This was the radio chatter of the last ever documented use of a space shuttle class ship by the superpower and precursor to the Federation, the United States of America. Looking at the footage of this black and white vessel soaring upwards from its launch pad, a 33rd century observer is gripped by a peculiar sentimental attachment. The vessel spins and then heads on a vector towards orbit. It seems odd to watch this Viper Mark III-sized craft struggle to slowly climb its way out of the planet's atmosphere. No advanced Alcubia drive was there to move the vessel across space-time. Rather, this vessel consumed nearly 680 tonnes of oxygen and 113 tonnes of hydrogen as it roared into orbit. Its fuel load was nearly 20 times the weight of the empty ship. With brute force and a sort of angry determination, the shuttle punched its way up through the atmosphere in a manner altogether foreign to any contemporary pilot. Such a vessel would have to endure immense aerodynamic forces, carefully manage the throttle and auxiliary systems. Nozzles channeling thrust and combustion chambers on the brink of melting. This vehicle was, in a word, primitive. To call it a truly space-capable vessel is generous. Yet this was the pride of a nation for almost 30 years. A heavy craft pushing its way into low Earth orbit top a jet of combusted hydrogen, oxygen and solid motor fuel. Looking through the surviving recordings, data, documentaries and blueprints, one cannot but be in awe of our ancestors. With today's frameshift drives and the incredibly efficient fusion reactors aboard every spacefaring vessel, it is almost impossible consider a time which our species was restricted only to chemical rockets for transportation into outer space. Space travel is today a mundane facet of our lives. The cosmos can provide fascinating sights, but ask any trader in Sios or Sothis and they will point out how quickly the black sky becomes rather boring. And yet, for millennia, space travel was a fantasy for our ancestors on Earth. Historical archives point to 1957, just over 1,300 years ago, as the moment when mankind first ventured beyond our blue and green cradle. This achievement came in the form of a small satellite with a single radio transmitter broadcasting a beep every few seconds to the Earth below. Named Sputnik, this little mass, metal and resistors, was launched on the back of a primitive modified missile 
by a superpower known as the Soviet Union. At a cursory glance at this part of human history, it seems that, early on at least, this Soviet Union led the first several achievements of humanity in space. They successfully launched the first satellite, first dog, first man, woman, orbital object, and even the first orbital station in space. Truly, this nation pioneered the first parts of human space travel, which explains today why the station Mikhail Gorbachev is named after the superpower's last president during this pioneering period. However, it was the United States that landed man on the moon and led the first space colonization efforts on the moon and Mars. Watching old footage, it's incredible to see what we could achieve through brute combustion and simple Newtonian physics. In effect, humanity voyaged to the stars on its first generation ships using nothing more than combusted and superheated gases. Today, a Cobra Mark III carries a few tonnes of hydrogen fuel in its tank. This hydrogen is then heated by the fusion reactor and ejected out of the rear of the ship, pushing the Cobra forward with a spectacular trail of vapours. This simple use of physics gives our modern-day vessels plenty of manoeuvring power. However, imagine for a moment that this would be the only way our vessels could travel. Such a painful scenario is what limited our ancestors. The bravery of astronauts and cosmonauts, as space pilots used to be called, extended to their willingness to deal with such limitations. These intrepid pilots boarded their vessels and burned 80% of their mass to get to orbit and beyond. This was humanity's reality and limitation right up into the 2100s. Then came the moment that forever turned humanity into a spacefaring species. Legendary physicist Li Chin Zhao and a team of talented scientists and researchers cracked the formula of hyperspace. In the wake of their discovery, the Federation created a system known as the Faraway Jump. This was a primitive hyperspace system, yet even in its crude form, it rapidly dispersed humanity across the cosmos. The Faraway Jump system used a series of installations to create temporary wormholes that allowed a vessel to enter through one installation and emerge at another moments later. From a technical and engineering perspective, this was a complex system that required a visit to both the initial start point and the final destination of the voyage to set the gates up. In practice, this meant that exploration ships using conventional chemical drive systems had to first reach destinations and then set up the complex series of satellites and installations to allow other vessels to utilise the system. As complex as this system was, it was an enormous enabler for the Federation, and it allowed robust space lanes to be set up. However, the cost and burden of maintaining the system began to weigh on the nascent superpower after the first few decades of use. Millions of monitoring satellites had to be put in place, and the gates themselves were sensitive and complex to operate. A single jump took hours of calibration and coordination. In many ways, it is surprising that we as a species were so hungry for interstellar voyages that we simply could not wait for a better technology. From the 2140s right up to the 2800s, this was the only means of meaningful travel across the galaxy. From the late 2800s to the advent of the Galactic Cooperative's Quirium drives in 3125, there were a number of drive technologies that attempted to supersede the faraway system. However, 
many of these prototype drives are lost to history. IGH drives are a technology that crops up in research, but little is known about them. The faraway system was finally decommissioned in 3125. Quirium, backed by Galcop, provided nearly instantaneous voyages between stars and systems with far less necessary infrastructure than the faraway system. During the reign of Galcop, Quirium drives, powered by an energy-dense fuel, propelled humans even faster into space. This foray into the galaxy brought humans into tangles with the Thargoids. A fascinating facet of history beyond the scope of this article and we soon learned about their hyperspace technology. Though still not well understood, the research into this technology was what laid the groundwork for the advent of the modern frameshift drive. However, there was a phase between Quirium drives and the frameshift drives that we so ubiquitously use across our galaxy today called the Type 2B drive. This came about shortly after the collapse of Galcop. In hindsight, the collapse of Galcop can be considered a step back for our species, comparable in form, if not scale, to the retreat of the Roman Empire from Europe. Much history, technology, science and culture was lost with the dissolution of Galcop's institutions, not least as the formats for information encodement were superseded. Amongst those, we lost knowledge of Quirium fuel. With a heavy sigh, we reached for the stars again, powered by slower, shorter-range drives. Heavily modified versions of the Type 2B are still in wide use today amongst megaships and military vessels. These drives did have one significant advantage over Quirium and even today's frameshift drives. They allowed for massive vessels to make large jumps at a time. Although they leave a hyperspace cloud in space as the drive rips open the hyperspace conduit, their ability to move large amounts of mass allowed humanity to spread even further among the stars and to solidify its foothold there. Shortly after the first Thargoid Wars, humanity finally cracked the Alcubierre drive, the long hypothesised but elusive secret to real faster-than-light travel in this dimension. With galactic cooperation, the technology was standardised across human space. By the late 3290s, supercruise was established as the primary means of travel within star systems, rendering travel between worlds the work of minutes. It is with respect that we must look at the history of humanity in space. Though it is tempting to smile at humanity's quaint struggles with chemical rockets, it is far too easy to dismiss them as primitive creatures with primitive technology. But it was their relentless appetite to push forward that led our ancestors to board a cylindrical black and white rocket nearly the size of a contemporary anaconda, and lift off towards the moon. This rocket was called the Saturn V. It is a magnificent sight, and everyone interested in our species' history should one day go and look up archival footage of it lifting off from Earth. The slow climb, the intense kerosene and liquid oxygen fueled F1 engines, the ice breaking off from this breathing giant. Crude wasteful tool for limited aims, certainly, but nothing else captured the imagination of humanity or fueled the desire to go beyond and explore the final frontier as that magnificent Saturn V. This romance of space travel is something our contemporary society is all but lost. Today, we complain about our jump ranges and commodity prices, the cost of ammunition, the inefficiency of our power plants. 
that we seldom stand out on the lunar surface by the historical Apollo 11 site and just wonder how our ancestors did it. How they rode rockets, giant metal cans of exploding fuel out into the black. Imperium Sine Imperator The assassination of Emperor Hengist Duval in 3301 started a quiet political and social revolution within the thousand-year-old galactic empire. In a follow-up to last month's feature on superpower history, guest contributor Elmrod Balaster takes a closer look at the challenges facing the empire today. After Hengis' assassination and the ascension of Arissa Levinci Duval, several political powers have emerged, running the gamut from the ultra-conservative to the liberal progressive. While this is commonplace, the Empire, squeezed between an encroaching Thargoid presence and the ever-expanding Federation, seems to be paralysed by indecision just when it needs strong leadership the most. Emperor Arissa Lavinji Duval is for many a compromise, thus the least divisive option to accommodate the various imperial interests. Despite the unusual circumstances of her ascension, a late marriage between her mother and the Emperor prior to his death, legitimised her as a member of the imperial line. Traditionalists welcome her commitment to law and order, while progressives grudgingly admit she is less supportive of slavery than some older senators. However, her voice is heard infrequently on behalf of the empire as a whole, and then, arguably, only when the strongest words are demanded. A recent incursion illustrates this apparent lack of leadership. Some months ago, federal powers triggered turmoil in several systems under Princess Ashling Duval's control, resulting in multiple successions. Ostensibly, to buy Ashling more time to recover, Arissa's forces expanded into the then unclaimed border systems between Ashling's territory and the nearby federal systems. This completely frustrated Ashling's local laws and operatives, who had spent time preparing those same systems, installing governments which would be receptive to Ashling's rule. Many of these new governments looked with equal favour upon Ashling and the Liberal Federation's shadow president, Felicia Winters, seeing much in common in their progressive attitudes. So, when Arissa's forces moved into these border systems, many turned to Winters instead, to the detriment of the Empire. How can the Emperor and the Imperial Princess have neglected to coordinate, okay, their efforts with their local lords, or even with each other? It is baffling that an episode like this could have been handled so poorly, leaving the Empire weaker. This episode highlights a disturbing truth. The Emperor is not truly in power. A stronger leader would have had the confidence to strategize with Ashling and the local peerage before commencing operation. The powers of patronage are vast. Arissa could have granted any of them fiefdoms, influence or money, or, if necessary, command obedience. Instead, she remains silent. This, and many other examples, outline the problems that the Emperor faces. With the death of Hengist Duval, absolute power has faded, and Her Highness seems more committed to balancing the interests of the four imperial powers rather than ruling a unified empire. On a strategic scale, the federal powers have been dictating the pace of change in 
the political landscape over the recent months. Whenever they want to expand their sphere of influence, they expand. In well-orchestrated operations, tens of thousands of federal agents, disguised as merchants or privateers, descend and prepare selected systems for federal rule. Through trade, elections and wars, they install governments favourable to Zachary Hudson or Felicia Winters. It might surprise some that, contrary to a public image, the shadow president uses mercenaries to provide the brute force for her expansions. Plausible deniability is a tool used by many leaders in the past and today. The smell of laser fire still hanging in the air, Winter's smiling representatives sweep into the newly exploited systems to give her citizens hope. Corporations loyal to Winters can then be installed in, pos in positions of control and supplied with credits to create work and debt. Economic and social dependencies are created, making the slow drift towards federation control inevitable. It is an effective approach, if you believe the end justifies the means. As a result of this very successful tactic, system after system falls to federation rule. This federal expansion is real and ongoing. What is the Empire going to do about it? If the Empire has an obligation to be a cultural counterweight to the mercantile might of the Federation, action is necessary. History is replete with examples of indecisive empires being reduced to little more than vassals of more dynamic and progressive powers. The Empire as an entity will likely not disappear any time in the near future, but it simply may continue to decline until it morphs under the yoke of the Federation values and leadership. Ironically, after almost a thousand years, the Imperial way of life could not be destroyed in war, but slowly washed away by the assimilation into the Federal system. What is so different about the culture of the galactic powers? The bedrock of both the Empire and the Federation economies is slavery but only the Empire has the courage to name it so. Imperial slaves dutifully fulfil their service to the Empire over several years, while Federal citizens work equally thanklessly under the yoke of self-imposed consumer debt. Many working conditions, especially in orbital cities, are poor, with limited opportunities to move or progress. Increasingly, numbers of galactic citizens fail to see any real contrast between Imperial and Federal societies. Continuing down the hypothetical path of cultural assimilation, one might not be surprised if the reduced imperial powers then fail away, making the Emperor's political position pointless. Smaller powers such as Utopia, Sirius, and even Delaney have found a way to coexist with federal interests. Why shouldn't an ex-imperial power be able to do the same? Why should the beloved Princess Ashling prefer the golden cage inside a reduced empire when there are more opportunities available to her by operating on her own? And this is where our hypothetical excursion into one possible dark future of the empire meets another brighter one. If the emperor accepts the protegean reality of 3304, open dialogue about imperial culture, bringing ultra-traditionalists, like the Sovereignty and Senator Toval together, with progressive interests like Ashling Duval and the Prismatic Imperium, could go some way to arresting this decline, who, apart from the Emperor, could make it happen and provide an appealing alternative to Felicia Winters. 
Who knows what's going on in the high chambers on capital, or in the imperial power's other home systems? It is not easy to understand why the four imperial superpowers act as disparately as they do, but unity of purpose and action is essential if the empire is going to remain an effective counterweight to the growing federation. Anyone promoting the empire's interest should have a common agenda, united under the emperor. Because if those who promote the empire's interest cannot agree upon who the ultimate arbiter of power is, then we no longer have an empire at all. The Third Elder Race and Beyond In 2280, an alien artifact was discovered in the Soul System, birthplace of humanity. It is said to be very small, about the size of a child's palm. Almost nothing else has been revealed about it, except that it was found on Mars. The federal government has been silent on the subject for over a thousand years. Yet multiple sources have confirmed the artifact's existence over the centuries. In the light of our recent rediscoveries of the Thargoids and the Guardians, it is time to revisit the Martian relic and wonder if there could be another intelligent alien race out there. Over a millennium ago, in the 23rd century, the Duval family discovered and destroyed a primitive sentient race on Akinar 6D, now the Imperial Capital, during the early days of space colonization. This extinction was unintentional, mostly brought on by off-world bacteria, although it is said that few colonists cared anything for the fate of these so-called primitives. Back then, humans had yet to discover just how rare intelligent life is and how precious a productive relationship between our two races might have been. The very beginning of the Federation and Empire's tumultuous conflict was initiated by outrage on the part of the Federation at the colonist genocide. For many centuries, this eradicated species was the only confirmed sentient alien race in the galaxy. The lost race of Akinar remains one of the worst ecological disasters in the history of humanity. Centuries later, we found ourselves engaged in violent contact with the second sentient alien race we had discovered, the Thargoids. Records on that early conflict are spotty after centuries of obfuscation, but we believe it occurred sometime in the last 200 years and ended in a human victory when the Intergalactic Naval Reserve Arm exposed the Thargoids to a bioweapon called Mycoid. Obviously, the Thargoids were not quite eradicated and only withdrew from our site to regroup, as our current interspecies war attests. Evidence of their existence is now incontrovertible in the form of the millions of war victims throughout the Pleiades, and increasingly inside the bubble as well. They are a form of life that are totally unlike us, possibly insectoid in nature, and so alien in their mindset that there is no public record of any human-thargoid communication to date. We might assume they weren't intelligent at all if they hadn't developed massive space vessels and weaponry that, at least for the moment, exceeds our own. Some sources even suggest that we owe some of our technology to the Thargoids after capturing and reverse engineering theirs. The most recent discovery of alien civilization in our part of the galaxy has been the Guardian ruins and the artifacts discovered therein. The Guardians are probably the third most discussed topic in the bubble after the Thargoids and Princess Ashling Duval's love life. Like humanity, at the height of their civilization, the Guardians spread to many worlds in our section of the galaxy and established colonies. Many of their ruins on barren moons are intact, and through the efforts of independent commanders assisting the engineer Ram Ta, we have discovered much of their history and culture. These records are publicly available and quite extensive, covering their culture, biology, language, technology, 
war with the Thargoids, and a brutal civil war that ultimately led to their destruction at the hands of their own artificially intelligent constructs. This long-dead, human-like sentient race fought the Thargoids over a million years ago and left a bounty of technology for us to harness, lessons to learn, or ignore, and possibly a race of murderous AI that we may have to fight in the future. There we have it, the known list of sentient aliens, the Thargoids, the long-dead guardians, and the primitive extinct race of Akinar 6D. While unintelligent life is plentiful in the galaxy, sentient races appear to be surprisingly rare by comparison. At the moment, we only know of two that aren't destroyed, although that number may soon become just one if the Thargoids have their way. There are, inevitably, rumors and unconfirmed stories of other forms of intelligent life. It's verifiably true that the powers that be in the Pilots' Federation or Universal Cartographics have locked off at least 18 vast sections of space encompassing tens of thousands of light years, not to mention more than a few individual star systems. Gossip amongst explorers has it that these areas are home to sentient aliens, but there exists no public proof. Given what little is publicly known about it, the so-called Martian relic might then be an artifact of either the Guardians or the Thargoids. We know both species ranged far in their day and could easily have landed or crashed on Mars a couple of million years ago. The main problem with this theory is that the Federation hasn't said anything about the Martian relic at all, neither when the Guardians were discovered, nor when the Thargoids returned to harass humanity last year. These would have been the perfect times to win points with voters and outplay rival powers. If done well, such a revelation might have granted the Federation new popularity and political influence on the galactic stage. For whatever reason, they chose to keep the artifact hidden. This may have been done to conceal from public knowledge that these powerful forces visited our solar system before we were capable of even traveling to the moon. But it is also possible that the relic isn't an artifact of either of these two elder races. There's nothing to suggest that there aren't or haven't been many more sentient alien races in the 13 billion year history of the Milky Way. Humanity, Thargoids, and the Guardians seem to share a small section of a relatively boring part of the galaxy. There's plenty of room in the rest of the galaxy for life to have reached sentience, like the ancient Akinarians. It's a replay of the ancient Fermi paradox, only now we know part of the answer. Recent history shows that at least four sentient races have existed in the same part of the galaxy in only the last two million years, and that number may be higher in other regions of space. This publication has discussed before the possibility that the Thargoids act as a kind of great filter. In short, the Thargoids might eradicate any sentient life they come across, and any stragglers that survive might withdraw to defend enclaves or immolate themselves as the Guardians did. It's frightening to consider what might have happened if we'd met the Thargoids a thousand years ago, just as we were first reaching into space. Even with present-day technology, we've already lost millions of pilots in this war. The Martian relic might well represent the remains of an as-yet-unknown third spacefaring alien species. It's certainly true that Mars once had life. The discovery of native fossils proved that as far back as 2100. But we know Mars didn't have a stable magnetosphere until it was terraformed in 2286, which makes it unlikely that complex life could have evolved there at any stage. And the relic can't just be a harmless rock, or the Federation would have no need for secrecy. What sort of species might this third elder race have been? We do know one thing. The Federation considers them to be important. 
If they didn't, there would be no reason to continue to conceal the relic from the scientific community, except the superpower's odious penchant for secrecy. It's conceivable that, in the early days of space travel when the relic was found, the Federation wouldn't want to reveal hard evidence of sentient aliens, even if they were benign and long dead. At this point, however, the revelation of another alien race would probably mean little if there were simply another long-dead solution to the Fermi Paradox. There must be some other reason why the Federation continues to restrict all information about this relic. Our ancient planet-bound ancestors on Earth used to fantasize about meeting aliens. Ironically, many of these imagined scenarios were not dissimilar from our current nightmarish conflict with the Thargoids, although the octagonal menace has destroyed fewer public monuments than classical media would suggest. As we know that those in power are not sharing the whole truth about sentient life in the galaxy with us, the complete lack of information about the Thargoids until their recent return is proof enough of that. We must speculate again. While we know that the Guardians strongly resembled us in bodily form, it would be the height of arrogance to assume that the vast majority of sentient races in the galaxy are also humanoid. It is therefore likely that most sentient races are as different from us as the Thargoids, or even more so. If the Thargoids are, as has been suggested elsewhere, the great filter of our section of the galaxy, we may uncover evidence of other alien civilizations, like the Guardians, that grew too powerful for the Thargoids' liking and were destroyed. A breathtakingly large percentage of worlds, even in our small corner of the galaxy, are yet to be thoroughly explored after all. As new technological developments propel us further and further from our ancestral homeworld, new sentient races must surely be discovered, perhaps long extinct, or perhaps still confined to their home planets in various stages of primitive development. Our leaders offer us clues in what they conceal from us. As discussed above, the Pilots' Federation has sealed off vast swaths of interstellar space, perhaps in service to the club, or some other power to conceal the existence of other races from us until they believe we are ready. While such powers may be thorough and authoritative, they are neither omnipotent nor infallible. Not even the club can conceal the stars themselves, and as long as explorers continue to push the boundaries of what technology makes possible, we will one day exceed the limitations placed on us. It's possible that our explorers might cross paths with alien adventurers out in the black, initiating first contact entirely by accident. The most easily accessible evidence of alien life, however, is the relic uncovered from Earth's closest planetary neighbor. The Federation still refuses to even acknowledge the Mars relic's existence, but we live in a time where secrets and conspiracies are being exposed to the public eye. If ever faced with enough public pressure, the Federation might soon have no choice but to reveal their secret treasure. Alternatively, brave investigators like the late Senator Kahina Loren might take matters into their own hands and snatch the relic so the entire bubble might be holded and wonder what sign a third elder race might have left right on our doorstep. Whether we will have cause to rejoice at the discovery of new friends, quake at the news of a second hostile entity, or mourn at the loss of another great civilization, the Mars relic is an important piece of our history that deserves to come to light, and maybe, in this time of upheaval and revelation, it might do so. Crate Mark II in October of last year, Falcon de Lacey released a teaser of an upcoming ship. Though no specifications accompanied it, the design and shape of the vessel were instantly recognizable. 
This was clearly a successor to Falcon's classic crate lightspeeder. Almost nine months later, the Crate Mark II was finally released to the public. A Classic Reimagined The original Mark I lightspeeder was manufactured during the 3100s. At the time, the ship dominated the small fighter scene. It was fast, maneuverable, and very heavily armed. Millions of units were sold all across human space. The Mark II is designed as a bold reimagining of the original. Though now in a much larger ship class, its new peers being ships such as Falcon's own Python, it retains many advantages boasted by the original, speed, agility, and firepower. But how does it hold up in the modern day? Before even stepping inside the vessel, you first notice the unusual design. Large sensor relays on the wings, a cockpit that's almost underslung, and a no-nonsense simple exterior give the ship a very low profile. Many ships of its size paint a large target on their backs, particularly those with more aggressive aesthetics such as the Federal gunship. The crate, however, blends into the surroundings. Despite being a new release, it almost seems as if it's been around forever. The simple exterior hides an interior of classic Falcon personality. Don't enter expecting the clean polymer panels or minimalistic interiors of some of its competitors. Loose wires snake around the cockpit, held down by no more than a strip of duct tape. One of the access hatches can't be closed, courtesy of a cable passing through. Despite undoubtedly driving many an obsessive commander mad, the clumsily constructed cockpit feels, paradoxically, one of the safest to sit in. As ever, when sitting at the helm of the Lacey ship, its reliability can almost be felt by merely holding the controls. This is a vessel that is preceded by its formidable reputation. One of the ship's main attractions is its multi-crew capability. The ship is able to host two crew members, one manning turrets and missile racks, the other piloting a ship-launched fighter. Outfitting Upon taking the crate into the shipyard for customization, its specifications make clear its purpose. The versatile internal slots and excellent weapon mounts combined with the strong stock jump range are typical of a multi-purpose vessel, the Lacey's specialty. Given that this places it as a competitor to the Python, it seems an odd choice of vessels for Falcon to release, attempting to fill as it does a role already occupied by one of the shipbuilder's own products. For the purposes of this review, the crate was given a standard multi-role loadout. Tests were performed on an engineered model to reflect what is available to the modern pilot. Due to the comparative sluggishness of the ship relative to smaller fighter-class vessels, a shield tank build was used. A reinforced prismatic shield generator with thermally reinforced and heavy-duty shield boosters grants thick shields with strong resistances. To further bolster defenses, a pair of Class V shield cell banks and three of the new Guardian Shield reinforcement packages were also installed, replacing cargo racks. Filling the remaining Class VI slot, a large fighter hangar was installed. Occupying the three large hardpoints were three plasma accelerators. A mixture of overcharged and efficient engineering allows maximum damage to be applied without causing significant heat problems. On the medium hardpoints, a feedback cascade railgun for shield cell disruption and a drag munitions packhound missile rack were mounted for utility. The packhound would come into its own with a dedicated weapons crew member. First Impressions 
As soon as the ship is released from the landing pad, one thing is noticeable. The sound. The large main thrusters growl when making small maneuvers. Upon leaving the station and boosting, they roar and splutter, reminding this reporter of a Viper Mark III. This clamor is not just for show, however. The crate's engine powered forward at an impressive speed, notably faster than most other ships of its size. A multi-role build of the ship can easily reach a cruise speed of about 390 meters per second and a boost speed of 530 with engineered thrusters. Throwing rotation into the mix, the ship offers an impressive performance. Its pitch rate comes in almost exactly halfway between the Python and the Fer de Lance, making it the most agile ship in its class by a large margin. This is evident when taking the ship for a spin in the asteroids. Ease of maneuvering throughout the rocks allow the ship to take cover, using the environment to its advantage. Pilots should be careful, however. It's easy to forget that it does not match the agility of some lighter medium ships. Mission Running Once initial flight tests were done, the vessel was brought out on its first mission, a high-profile assassination. The mission was intended to be tackled by an entire wing, but the ship was sent alone for this task with two crew members aboard. Upon dropping in, it was clear just how daunting this task would prove. An engineered Federal Corvette with full escort greeted the crate. Not taking any chances to allow the target to escape, combat was initiated almost immediately. The Corvette's overwhelming firepower was clear, but the crate's thick shields, enhanced by Guardian Shield reinforcement packages, stood strong, buying enough time to rout and destroy the Corvette's entourage. Soon, all that remained was the warship itself. The ensuing duel was long and punishing. Even with the backup of a fighter, the crate struggled to lay down enough firepower to crack the shields of the Corvette. After what felt like an endless battle of burst damage and shield cells, the Corvette made a mistake, deploying a shield cell too late after a pass. This granted an easy shot for the crate, disrupting the shield cell with the railgun, and the Corvette's primary defenses finally collapsed. This allowed the crate's gunner to blow off the Corvette's weaponry with the Packhound rack, before a precise volley of plasma accelerators gutted the ship's power plant. Despite taking a battering and expending all its shield cells, the crate had prevailed against a far stronger enemy. In the same situation, it is difficult to believe that a similar ship such as the Python would have been capable of this feat, due to its lack of a fighter bay and sluggish turning abilities. Although the crate struggled to break the corvette's shields, the class difference between the two ships must be taken into account meaning the crate has extremely impressive firepower for its size. Many types of missions fall well into the crate's capabilities, ranging from combat to smuggling. It struggles with trading missions that require larger payload, though these are not usually tackled by multi-role mission runners anyway, favoring dedicated haulage vessels. Excluding passenger missions, the ship is comfortably capable of performing the vast majority of available contracts. One of the major components of its ability to perform such varied tasks is its impressive jump range. In full combat fit, the ship is capable of well over 20 light-year jump range when engineered, and the addition of a Guardian frameshift drive booster can send this well into the 30s. If the ship is stripped down, it is an excellent exploration vessel, even allowing the pilot to bring a fighter along for the ride. Many pilots, in taking the war to the Thargoid's doorstep in the Pleiades, seek unusual combat builds to match the alien's armaments and tactics. Most ships fail to suit both of these situations, but not the crate. 
The mixture of hardpoint sizes and the ability to stack significant hull strength allows it to excel when engaging alien foes. Guardian plasma chargers and Gauss cannons prove particularly dangerous choices, allowing easy sniping of Thargoid hearts. Not only does it excel in such combat, but its high jump range even in full combat loadout permits easy access to the Pleiades. The final verdict? The bottom line on the Crate Mark II is clear to see. It has soared to the top of the medium multi-role field. Few other ships compare to its hugely varied capabilities. As the old saying goes, jack of all trades, master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. It's true, many other ships surpass its abilities in one specific field. An Asp Explorer can just outjump it. Many heavy fighters can outturn it. A Federal gunship can outgun it. But nothing is capable of doing all these things simultaneously while also allowing for two crewmates and only occupying a medium landing pad. For those seeking a ship for everything at a reasonable price, the crate, for now, is unmatched. Into the Black, the remarkable voyages of Commander Pingmonster. It has often been remarked that interstellar explorers journey as much through their own thoughts and meditations as they do through space, and it's well documented that many pilots claim to experience a Zen moment at least once in their career. Commander Ping Monster, an explorer holding the rank of elite, can testify to this firsthand. He has visited thousands of star systems, mused over tens of nebulae, and watched a hundred different stars rise over alien worlds. We caught up with him at Edelman Station in the Cubio system to find out exactly what it is that lures him into the black. The Pleiades expedition of spring 3303 had started as a scavenging and prospecting mission. However, while in the midst of Guardian and Thargoid artifacts and relics, Commander Ping Monster realized with cold certainty that we are not alone in this galaxy. The expedition was a success and yielded a nice profit, but the insights he gained were worth far more than his payment from the engineer Ram Ta. He explains, These are messages sent to us through time. There is information in these obelisks that was left here for an advanced civilization to use, and... We should do just that. The Guardians talk to us at these archaeological sites. We need to listen. During his time spent at a few Thargoid surface sites, he was able to scoop up materials dropped by scavengers. A Thargoid carapace, a few Thargoid energy cells, Thargoid organic circuitry, and Thargoid technology components. He took a couple of days off from prospecting to study the scavengers and their daily rituals. After two days of observing these enigmatic creatures, I have come to the conclusion that they are a combination of organic and mechanical elements, which is simply amazing. It also appears as if they care after and maybe even nourish the Thargoid eggs on the surface, just as remarkable as the way they go about repairing the surface site with some sort of corrosion beam. This sort of analysis and commentary has come to define Ping Monster's career. Not content to merely experience the galaxy's less probable corners, he is a committed narrator. Visitors to his travel log on the Pilots' Federation forum can follow his expeditions to Barnard's Loop, the Orion Constellation, the Heart and Soul Nebula, Colonia, the California Nebula, and more. 
His latest expedition was a high watermark for his career as a pilot. The Beagle Point expedition of December 3303 kept him in the black for several months, and he traveled well beyond the eponymous star system to gather exploration data. Beagle Point is considered the ultimate milestone for any explorer because to reach this system, pilots must endure 65,279 light years of interstellar travel and cross dangerous regions of the galaxy. He chose his ASP explorer, Canera, for the expedition, as he had experienced virtually no problems during two shakedown runs outside of populated space, and recent work with the engineers had successfully increased the jump range from the 20s to over 40 light years. His first stop was Colonia. He took refuge for a day or so there, trekking through the festival grounds and the Yolprau Nebula to test newly installed equipment, and reacquainting himself with his fleet of ships hangered in the colonies. From there he set a course for Beagle Point. Before he had Sagittarius A-Star behind him, however, a white dwarf pulled his ship out of supercruise, damaging several systems. Kanara took some heat damage when we flew too close over the top of a white dwarf. Entirely my fault. That scrubbed a few percent off systems here and there, but with dual auto-field maintenance units and plenty of materials in reserve, that is no problem at all. Unfortunately, days later a hard landing on a high-gravity planet caused significant damage to his ship, and he was forced to return to Colonia for repairs. In March this year, he restarted the expedition. The journey went more smoothly this time, and he, by way of several more nebulae, white dwarfs, neutron stars, and a thinning star field, he arrived on April 13th at ZQ-LC24-0, otherwise known as Beagle Point. There, he explored out beyond the remote system in search of the rare and exotic, and to test his own skills. It was here that he began to experience something akin to enlightenment. When I was on the dark side of a world beyond Beagle, gazing into the intergalactic void where there seems to be nothing at all, this Zen thing really kicked in. During the following week, he added 200 light years to the route and jumped even further into the black. He wrapped up the expedition with a prospecting mission on a rocky world that seemed devoid of any natural light. This far out from Beagle, you're a long way from the galactic bulge and an incredibly long way from everything else that is in the universe. During the long journey home, he spotted a black hole near the Scaleblau Nebula while examining his galaxy map. There, he mapped over 60 black holes. However, further analysis of the star map revealed a tantalizing anomaly. A thousand light years from his location was a region of space that contained what appeared to be an uncountable number of black holes. He immediately jumped to the cluster to gather exploration data, and he remained there for several days, marveling at his surroundings. Going out into the black and surveying a neutron star field that is a thousand light years across, or a nebula containing over sixty black holes, is an enlightening moment. Those are the reasons I explore. He explains that areas like these anomalies are few and are hard to locate, but the rewards are great. However, they are full of danger and many explorers have been claimed by the perilous gravity wells. Ping Monster returned to his home system in June 3304, proud but exhausted, with a computer full of exploration data. There were no parades to honor his accomplishments, but commendations have never been the reason pilots explore, he concludes. 
Our rewards come from experiencing the reality of transgalactic travel and discovering who we really are, and the loneliness of the black is a unique experience. Pilots will always explore the cosmos as far as our technology allows us. They will always venture out to find something new or to break a record, even if the only records they can break are their own. Neutron Jump Fertility Fears Neutron surfing could cause a decline in fertility amongst pilots, according to research released by a team at Cooper Research Center in HIP 19072 this week. According to a survey of volunteers at the center, around 63% of pilots examined during the course of the study appear to have suffered from a slight drop in fertility over the past year after undertaking regular enhanced jet cone boost jumps from neutron stars as part of their ship's normal navigation routine. Over the course of an affected pilot's lifetime, the cumulative effect of enhanced jet cone boost jumps is predicted to represent a decline of between 3 and 5% in pilot fertility levels. Researchers speculate that the effect they have noted may be due to the way that exotic matter and radiation from a neutron star interact with a ship and its crew when passing through the frame shift envelope, leading to mutations in DNA contained within affected pilots' sex cells, which lead to an increase in non-viable mutated gametes. When questioned about the impact this could have on long-distance travellers who often rely on making these types of jumps, the scientist at Cooper Research Centre issued the following statement. While there is a strong evidence for a causal link between fertility and neutron jumps, there is no need to call for an outright ban on neutron jumping. Instead, we will recommend that travelers avoid neutron jumping except when necessary, and that they consider utilizing basic protection methods for their ships, such as using an energy shield or installing denser armor and bulkhead material to assist in blocking dangerous radiation. Their report concluded with a call to the Alliance government to release further funding to the team to enable them to continue their research in investigating the effects of jet cone boost jump travel on pilot health. Thank you for listening to Issue 12 of Sagittarius iMagazine. This issue featured articles written by Alexander Sepulveda, J.C. Warren, Lewis Calvert, Minnie Watu, Rasidun Suvarine, and guest contributor Professor Elrod Ballister. This audio edition featured the voices of Adernis, Beetlejuice, Daryl Lar, Jolly Future, Maya Fay, Phoenix Defar, Poet Sparrow, Rosetta Stone, Suvarine, Spidey W2, and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Adernis, Edlevi, Suvarine, Dr. Toxic, and Wotherspoon. It features audio sequences from the 135th and final mission of the NASA Space Shuttle Program. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Turco, so we'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at Sagittarius-I.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius, ah.